If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here. Let me end on the NA. Heat guaranteed when you press in the play. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. Super excited to have a great guest with us today, Mr. Bruce. Eckfeld, how you doing? I'm doing well, then. And I, I don't know. I just got back. Uh, I'm going to introduce you and everything and give a, a background. But I, I just got back from a school orientation. Uh, well, it was, it was just interesting because it's a whole new uh, year with a, like, they had to. So all the kids have to get COVID tested, and it's like once a week, and they have this whole setup, and everybody wears masks, and they have all these new protocols and all that. It's a, it was really strange. And I know some people are fighting about some schools are starting to mandate vaccines too. Like kids getting going to school. You have any kids? Uh, I have four. Yeah. Yeah. 16, uh, 14, 12, and three. So yeah, I have a, uh, almost a 17 year old, uh, I one. So, uh, <laughs> high school is a high school is interesting. So, um, uh, I, there's, there's a whole bunch of words, uh, to introduce you. <laughs> They're all pretty good, <laughs> but I was reading, I was reading, I, I, I need you to define some things for me. So I'm going to, I'm going to read a couple of things and then maybe we can kind of conjugate some of them and you can tell me what they mean. Uh, so a certified gazelles coach, uh, Inc. 500 CEO, OKR and lean agile expert, uh, and then team mentor. And what I'm most interested about personally is the Ironman triathlete. Ooh. All right. Yeah. <laughs> We can, so, we can talk about all those. Let, let's talk about all of them. Uh, and then I'll, I'll get people to uh, tell, uh, for you to tell them a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Uh, but this is much less a professional uh, kind of setup than, than you have in yours. So uh, I'll be all over the place. Well, I promise it'll be at least entertaining for us. And if anybody else, uh, yeah, you know, it's a bonus. As long as it's entertaining <laughs> for us, that's all that really matters. Exactly. Uh, so what is, what is a gazelle's coach? Yeah, so um, uh, gazelles, or um, uh, also kind of referred to, are known as scaling up. Um, uh, scaling up is a, a, a framework for helping companies figure out how to define and execute on strategy. Um, mm-hmm. We refer to that. We refer to those companies as gazelles. So gazelles coach or scaling up coaches. It's really um, uh, that growth phase of a company. So we talk about startups, and then we talk about scale ups. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I was a 
tech guy at a tech company and I um, founded and scaled a business. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was one of the kind of frameworks that I used was what we call the scaling up framework. And there's other ones, there's EOS and there's traction and there's uh, strategic coach and map and stuff, but it's basically helping companies go from a couple million to a couple hundred million in revenue. Oh, I can, I can use some of that too. So uh, wh- where did you, uh, where'd you go up? Yeah. Um, so, well, so I was born in Philadelphia, East Coast, uh, mm-hmm. and my father moved us out to um, my uh, younger brother, my mother, and two golden retrievers uh, moved out to Minnesota, so Twin Cities. Yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a Philly guy too, right? I'm, I was uh, raised, yeah, I grew up in Philly. I was born in, uh, I grew up in Northeast Philly. So I went, I grew up in Northeast Philly. I went to three different high schools. My first one was High School of Engineering and Science, which was on 17th and Norris. Uh, not the nicest neighborhood, especially in, in that time, deep in the heart of North Philly. Uh, we have barbed wire. We were bust into the school. We have barbed wire all around, which was interesting. Then I ended up going to a neighborhood school, which is called Washington High School, George Washington High School. And uh, I got kicked out of there and graduated from uh, Northeast High. So that was, uh, and I went to Temple. So I stayed in, uh, in Philly pretty much until yeah. I moved to LA. Yeah, no Temple. Yeah, my, um, uh, the Eckfeld had been in, Philly since 1752. Uh, oh. So, uh, uh, long, long time Philly family. Um, yeah, I was born in Ambler. So, uh, okay. you know, just north, uh, north suburbs. And then um, in my, um, several of my uh, relatives taught in the school districts in Montgomery County and stuff. So, uh, yeah. So, and I, I got back there when I was young, seeing grandparents and stuff. But yeah, when I was four, I moved to Minnesota. So, I, I I call myself a Midwesterner, right? From a got it from a core point of view. Yeah, but you still have a little bit of Philly in it. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I can I can pull it out when need be. But uh, yeah, so so um, yeah, so uh, I grew up in Minnesota. You grew up in Minnesota, right? Go yeah, ahead. I interrupted you. No, that's fine. Uh, ended up um, uh, in school in high school. I was uh, really good at math, and I was really good at art. Uh, mm-hmm. And so when I was kind of thinking about where do I what do I want to do when I grow up, kind of thing, um, mm-hmm. architecture came up. Uh, as being kind of a, a nice combination of more of the kind of the fine arts and creative arts with um, kind of the hard hard sciences and engineering. Ended up at McGill University in Montreal. Uh, so I did two degrees in architecture there. Uh, went back to Minnesota for a little bit, practiced, uh, you know, did my kind of internship in architecture and then decided I really didn't want to be an architect. And so I got recruited to New York uh, working with interactive media. It kind of got me into tech. I was kind of product strategy, product design, and then more kind of tech and founded a tech company um, here in New York, uh, 2002. So focus on lean agile. So were, were you passionate about architecture? Uh, I was very passionate about the study and kind of the, uh, the art of architecture. Uh, mm-hmm. if, as I got into the profession, it was just, it was a little staid. Like I, I basically was, you know, I was in my cubicle and I could see the next 20 years of my life, basically just moving down the cubicles down to the, you know, to the corner office of the right. you know, design architect kind of thing. And it's just kind of a combination of um, uh, wanting a little bit more adventure and uh, realizing there was more to what I wanted to do. And that was an opportunity. I mean, I was, I got very into tech in um, my, my, when I went to architecture school, the computer, computer aided design was just kind of coming out. And so I really just doubled down on that. I really got on the computer as a design tool. And so that, mm-hmm. that got me kind of into tech and then the web was kind of taken off. So it was this confluence of things that, I had an opportunity. It seemed like an interesting opportunity, and that just kind of took me a different path. Um, I, I, I say I still use everything I learned in architecture today. 
right? I mean, architecture is essentially a creative problem solving, um, you know, skill. And so I went from kind of, you know, glass and bricks and wood to uh, bits and bytes to now I, I like to think of myself as a team architect, right? Like I work with leadership teams, um, work a strategy, all the same thing, right? Like how do we figure out what the constraints are? How do we come up with options? How do we design solutions, right? How do we implement those things? It's very structure, problem solving. It's just, I keep sort of switching the, the material that I'm uh, working with. But do you feel you're getting your sort of artistic itch scratched by doing that too? A little bit. It's it's fairly conceptual. Like when we sit down and work on design problems in the business or strategic problems in the business, there's there's definitely, you know, it's creative thinking, right? We're using that kind of creative design process in there. Um, but it, but it's abstract. I still actually do uh, a lot of uh, fine artwork. Uh, okay. So I draw and paint and things like that to kind of scratch that itch or to keep that muscle developed. Well, what's your favorite medium? Like, what do you what do you like to do? You know, it's actually I've, I've been going fairly digital. Um, so I've been using a lot of uh, you know tablets and stylus and the the, the big new iPad is is okay. is decent enough. Uh, it's always a trade off, right? Because you the, the the ease of just being able to pull out an iPad <laughs> and start drawing and, and it's got pretty good touch and you can get pretty good feel and stuff. And then some yeah. of these apps have, have really, I mean, the only thing they haven't done very well is watercolor, which I like. So, you know, that the ease of that, you know, I find in my situation, my lifestyle is worth the trade-off, um, you know, pulling out, pulling out paper and charcoal and all the mess and everything like that is it's, it's a lot. So. Yeah. I've never used, yeah. I've never used digital media. Like uh, I, I, Mine was oil painting. Well, actually, going back hundreds of years, uh, when I when I was a kid, uh, you know, I would I would I would make art, and then at one point, my dad was like, eh, "It's kind of shit," so I stopped doing anything for like thirty years. And then my my ex wife is like, because I kept talking about art, she's like, uh, she got me a gift certificate of like two art classes, so I went to the class. And I painted, you know, with that whatever in two class, I painted this painting. It was like, whoa, this is pretty good. I'm like, oh, okay. And then it's still there. And I, and, and uh, you know, I started painting again. And I, I, I did, you know, I did a fair number of uh, oil paintings, uh, sold some, gave some away, gave some charity and all that stuff. And then uh, during COVID, I started getting into like acrylic. And I, one of the things I would do is I would sit down and I have this room where I listen to, records like albums you know that you know the kids have no idea what i'm talking about but they're getting back they're getting back in now but uh you know like these things these things are all over <laughs> it goes back around so it's like uh you know you know it's funny and bell bottoms are back in too my daughter's wearing them too I mean, it's funny there was a time where i remember records were used as a Oh, well, you will create like a clock out of it or, or a coaster or these things. Now you're buying these records. I was buying for like $2, like $40 at even swap meets and stuff. And I, now they're doing the same thing with CDs. I just went to a swap meet. They're like, we have coasters with CDs. I'm like, I still have about six, 7,000 of them in a garage in Philly. I'm sure they'll come back around. But so one of the things I, I've been doing is I put in an album. I, uh, I you know, consume some cannabis and whatever whatever that album's mood is, that would be my painting. And I started a or or, or a sketch or whatever the medium. I, but I cannot get the same texture as I was getting with oil. I can't. I never had a class on uh, acrylic or anything. I have no idea how to do that. It's completely different. Yeah, 
So I probably have to take a class in that. But I'm just, I just think like having this, uh, if you have this in you, you have to scratch that itch as much as possible in whatever you're you're doing. And I, I kind of felt the same way as you when I was went to into corporate and all that and sitting there in in the cubicles or even in the offices, it still felt so stale because I wasn't being able to be creative. The creative part of it was the deal making. So I always thought that I enjoyed even when I was I was doing commercial real estate for a little uh time in my life. And I'm like, I love commercial real estate. I did not love commercial real estate. I, I love the transaction of it because I could be creative. I'm like, oh, well, you, you know, this and that, let's figure it out. So that it felt like I was doing some creative, but at the end of the day, it was not, it was still that whole, cause I, it's like, it's like, and I don't know heroin, but I'm just saying, I'm using it as an analogy. It's like taking that shot of heroin, you feel really good and it goes away. And then for next, until you get your ne- next transaction, you're jonesing for that. And that, that's, uh, you know, getting, being able to do that uh, for a living where you're getting both of those. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And it's, so it's, you know, that creativity can come out in, in lots of different ways where it's, you know, direct through fine arts or whether, you know, through the, the art of the deal, right. And like cutting, yeah. cutting the deal and being creative around that to, you know, coming with strategy. I mean, I, I, I do fundamentally love the work that I do with companies on strategy because it is, you have to, you have to solve problems, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's, you got to get outside the box. You got to figure out like, how, how do we, how do we remove some assumptions or, or add some new variables here that are going to allow us to come up with new ideas? Mm-hmm. So uh, w- uh, when you were, when you're growing up and you decided you were going to be uh, an architect, did you have support of your family? Your, were your parents together? It's interesting. So I was, I'm the only non-MD, MD, PhD person in my family. So okay. my mother, my father, my brother, all highly, highly skilled, highly trained medical, uh, very uh, scientific. So, um, you know, very supportive, but not a whole lot of kind of uh, understanding uh, yeah. in the immediate family. My grandfather mm-hmm. was chemical engineer, but was also a painter. So mm-hmm. I think if anyone in my family that kind of inspired me on the creative side uh, would have been him. Um, my stepmother um, uh uh, was an architect. Um, mm-hmm. uh, she came into my life like when I was 16, 17. So she was kind of influential right at that period of, you know, helping me navigate and understand really what it was going to be like. But yeah, there was, um, uh, I wouldn't say I, would, I, I considered myself a black sheep, but I, I felt like I was a little different than, than the rest of my immediate family. So I had to be a little bit willing to to step out and, and try this. And it was great. I did, the training of architecture is amazing. I just, I found the profession of architecture, not, not that interesting. And so I've, I chose to kind of apply it in different ways. Uh, growing up, you were artistic in clients. You were doing art. W- was that being supported because you had a family that was, uh, as you said, MD, PhD, they were supporting your, uh, yeah, your, they were your my, my mom, my mom and dad were really good about just getting me into art programs when I was young and, I remember, you know, on the weekends going and throwing clay and doing pots and painting and, and cool. things like that. They were really supportive of, of me experimenting, even if they didn't necessarily have a particular passion or insight on it. They were they were good about getting me exposed to it. So uh, I'm going to ask you boring questions now because I'm just curious uh, myself. Uh, I read about somewhere in one of your interviews or something about good business habits. So what are some of the keys of forming good business habits? Yeah. Um, there's so many. <laughs> I mean, what, you, say, what are your favorite? <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I, I think it, it somewhat depends on the stage of the business, right? We, yeah. When I look at businesses, it's really kind of where you are. If, if, you know, early stage company, it's really this, how do you get to market? 
you know, with a solution that really solves a problem, right? So mm-hmm. we talk about in early stage development, we talk about lean, you know, um, kind of lean thinking and uh, uh, the whole process of identifying a real problem in the market that has, uh, if solved, will generate value for a, a specific customer. Um, and so early stage companies, it's all about how to identify a problem that really needs to be solved. Can you solve that problem effectively? And then can you monetize that? If you can get kind of those three things, then you kind of move into, okay, I, I, I can I can solve a problem that people will pay me money for. Now, how do I scale this thing? Right. Mm-hmm. So assuming that you can monetize a solution at a unit level, the question is, how much does it take to bring in new leads, to close those leads, turns on the projects? What's your what we call cost of acquisition, cost, mm-hmm. cost of customer acquisition? Mm-hmm. Then, then you're kind of moving into a scaling process. So I would say, and, and unfortunately, this is one of the the uh, dirty little secrets or the little kind of challenges we have. Oftentimes, the people that are very very good at that early stage are not so good at the next stage. Right? Yeah. To scale a company requires a different mindset, a different set of skills and capabilities, a different process. Um, and oftentimes those people that are really, really good at early stage entrepreneur kind of efforts tend to not to be so good or tend to be very challenged if they don't adjust and change when they move into the kind of scaling phase. So honestly, a lot of the work I do is helping leaders transition through that process, right? You either decide, you know, help them understand that there is a process they're going to transition and you decide to do they want to do that or not. Do they want to stay early stage or do they just want to start new companies or do they want to make that transition? If they do help them make that transition and that it's really about building out a leadership team, right? Like a certain early stage entrepreneur can't, I mean, depending on the business model, it can't take a company very effectively to 10, 20, 30 million. You've got to have a team around you, right? So mm-hmm. then the question is, is who are you as a leader? What is the strategy that you're trying to execute and who do you need to surround yourself by? And all those questions, there's kind of nuances in there that help them that that need to be answered well to be able to create the right leadership team and then mm-hmm. execute against the strategy. Uh, so is that why you, I I think you mentioned somewhere that uh, entrepreneurs are typically bad managers? Is that uh, is that why? Uh, they, they they can be, and there's there's different. So entrepreneurs uh, it can be bad at managing themselves. <laughs> But things can be bad at managing other people as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And and one of the, I mean, I, I talk a lot about the transition from founder to CEO. And and one of the big ones is a lot of founders are just super smart, right? And they're mm-hmm. really good at things. And they will often never find someone who's as smart as they are or as good as they are at the thing they're trying to do. And and that's just reality, right? You're, you're, and if they hold out to try to find someone who's just as smart or smarter than them, they're just, it's not going to work, right? They're never going to get anywhere. And so they have to realize that they're going to have to give up a whole bunch of things and let other people do it that may not be as good as smart as them, but that's okay because they need to concentrate their energy on the leadership side, not on the execution side. And they have to be willing to kind of give up that level of expectation. Um mm. The other one is that you know there's there's lots of ways to do these things, and sometimes they just get fixated on their way of thinking or their way of solving this, and oftentimes they just have to let other people figure out the better way of doing it or let let them figure out their way of doing it. So a lot of it is this um, uh, letting go uh, and focusing. So I, I do a diagram of kind of this circle, and I I talk about the challenge of, uh, of an entrepreneur will often take kind of pie wedges off and say, okay, I'm going to find someone to do marketing, I'm going to find someone to do engineering, I'm going to find someone to do operations. Finance. And the problem is they get left with this sort of thin pie slap, pie pie wedge, and and they start to freak out because like well, I'm going to be CEO of taking out the trash if I give out all these things. So instead, we give them a model of saying take that circle, 
and, and take a, a segment of it, keep the core, very core kind of trivial pursuit pie piece of that circle and find people who can extend each one of those. So you're in charge of strategy and long-term planning and coordination, but you're not going to execute on that. You need to find people that can extend that. And so that is a little bit of the art of the transition of when you move into that CEO role, he or she really needs to figure out how, how to surround themselves with people that are going to extend, kind of increase the leadership capacity of the organization. In your experience, did you see a lot of founders uh, that put themselves in the CEO role being less successful uh, and they're more like, so I kind of think about uh, Bill Gates uh, as an example. So as a founder, a co-founder and uh, and a founder, he, he was doing a lot of work and then he put, you know, Steve Ballmer on in place to, to sort of run things because he wanted to focus on uh, the research and the innovation stuff. Uh, not saying that he he obviously did not do a bad job <laughs> in his role. I'm sure you know he was the richest man in the world at that point. But I, I'm I'm just I'm probably asking for myself uh, more or less. Uh, you know, if anybody else uh, feels the same way. But you know, uh, when I launched my company, uh, you know, I, I'm the co-founder and CEO. But getting the right kind of people around me, and you said. I mean, I love what you said about expectations because this has been a struggle for me all the time. I'm very, very hard on myself and I work very hard, but I'm also the owner. Like, this is my business. I can't expect anybody that I hired to have the same passion. So I feel that. And like Gary Vaynerchuk talks about that all the time. He's like, it's you, it's on you. It's not them. It's not their company. I get it. But there's a certain part of me is like, well, I'm paying you and I'm, I'm going to try to give you some equity so you can be a part of this company. This is also yours in a certain sense. And I want to give the, uh, the autonomy to people uh, to do that, but I still want to measure results. Like It's very, very important for us to be uh, successful. And I, I think that there may be a little bit of a gray area in my own uh, expectations on what those milestones are. Because as you're building a startup, it's like, it's not just here's your lane and stay in it. Sometimes you have to go into this other lane uh, because we're small. And I, I'm, I'm, I always struggle with that. Yeah, I mean, so, well, there's a bunch of things in there. I mean, one, I would say that there's a difference between being entrepreneurial and having ownership. And, and you know, I get, I get this all the time. Entrepreneurs, you know, early stage entrepreneurs, like, oh, I just want to find people like me. And like, no, you don't. I mean, what did you do? Right. You, you were frustrated and you left and you started a new company, right? You figure out how to find a bunch of people like you. They're going to last six months, a year, and they're going to learn everything. And then they're going to get pissed and they're going to go out and find new companies, right? But you don't, that's not what you want. You want ownership. I get that. You want ownership, but there's lots of different elements or, or aspects of ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of people focus on equity as being like re- like literal company ownership. And, and there's two problems with that. One is it's, horribly complicated, right? Actually giving out real equity is complicated and it can, it can look good, but the value proposition is, is quite complicated, right? Cause you have to have some kind of liquidation event, some kind of capitalization that that's actually going to turn that into to dollars. So that can be a little bit of a game, um, or, or not work so well, you know, depending on what your setup is. And if, mm-hmm. unless you're going to exit in two years, three years, it's hard to really use that as motivation. Mm-hmm. And, and also, you know, not everyone, well, people are motivated by a lot more than money, right? So we look at, um, you know, money Money does well up to a certain point, but then we look at um, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. So anytime we're looking at kind of motivation, compensation, uh, incentive systems, you know, beyond money, I want to say, 
what, what can you do to give people more autonomy over the work they do, how they do it, you know, the process? Uh, what can you do to help them become masters at something they really care about, right? So mm-hmm. a subject matter, a process that someone really wants to get good at marketing or public speaking, giving them opportunities to do that will motivate them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then purpose, how do, how do you connect them? How do you connect the work that they're doing to the impact that you're having in the world, right? So if you mm-hmm. can figure out those things, those are often much better motivators than cash, than money, than compensation, mm-hmm. and, and really helping drive ownership in the market. The other one I talk a lot about with uh, leadership is something called commander's intent. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking to give uh, a direct report or a leader, uh, a manager, uh, a clear sort of definition of what, what I want done, uh, and this comes out of the military, and I'm always a little careful about using military analogies for business, but this one works pretty well, is um, you know, commander's intent is the idea that you want to be very clear on what the outcome you want is. What are the what are the what's the playing field look like, right? What is what is the what are the boundaries? What, what is the what is the uh, surface look like? Like getting clear on what they have to stay within. What are the kind of the rules of the game? Mm-hmm. Uh, what resources they have, but then everything else they should figure out, right? So mm-hmm. when a commander is working with you know soldiers, it's we're going to take the hill. Uh, you've got seventy two hours to do it. Uh, you can use these resources. You have to work at night, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Otherwise, you figure out how you want to do it. You want to go up the left flank, right flank. You want to go northern breach or like whatever you decide because A, you've got to own it, right? You've got to own the process. But B, you probably a lot know a lot more when you get on the ground than I'm going to know, right? So I'm not going to dictate what it is because you're going to have to make decisions on the fly. So the same thing is true in business is just as, as you're working with your direct reports, as you're working with your leaders, Get very clear with them on look. This is this is what I expect. This is the outcome that I'm looking for. Here are mm-hmm. the boundaries that you have to work within. Here are the resources you have. Otherwise, you can decide what you do. Um, the challenge that you mentioned is an early stage company. That landscape can change very quickly. Uh, you know, both internally and externally. So there's going to have to be some fluidity both between you and them as well as between your direct reports on. We got to sell this deal, right? Well, who does the who does the pitch? Who's figuring out the proposal? Who does the pricing? Who's figuring out the contract? Who's going to deliver? Like some of that stuff, you may have to have a little bit more of a team, uh, kind of a team effort around. Then yeah. I can have very clear swim lanes and very clear division of responsibilities. Yeah, I I, I think you're you're right on with this. Uh, I, I definitely like the whole um, idea of telling everybody why. Given those some parameters and and the how, let them go figure out. The challenge that I found in the and I think this is a personal hiring thing, and I I always learn from these experiences because I've uh, you know as a I used to be a consultant for years too, and I uh, like consultant sales for instance. So I could always come in and say, okay, you have your home run hitter. And that person's going to be responsible. You need your steady eddies as well. Like they need, they run, you know, your company stands on them because that guy or girl who who's a home run hitter, they're going to strike out uh, a lot of the time as well. And plus, they may actually roll to somewhere else because, uh, you know, they're all about uh, motivated by uh, finances, I guess. But one of the things that I, I've been having these experiences where we bring people in and we give them that autonomy. And the flexibility is missing. So they'll stay in their lane. They're like, but you didn't, you didn't give me this. 
I'm like, well, you didn't ask or you didn't go out and reach it. It's not like always me giving things uh, to people. So I, I think we're at a point in our company, and I don't want to hijack this to be like my own <laughs> consultation kind of thing. But I mean, we're in a point in the company where I, I'm really considering like, all right, I, I, I think I know what I'm good at. I know my skill sets. Uh, I know where I'm missing. Like I've done so many gap analysis of uh, of our business. And like, okay, where we're weakest at, we started bringing some personnel in, and uh, you know, it, it doesn't always work out the way that I sort of envisioned it working out. And I think there's a pattern to this. It's because I always felt like I give too free of a rein. Like here's here's why I want to do this. You go figure out how to do this. Bring it up, but I do have expectations on results. And if you're not getting those results, come earlier and say you need this. But if you're going to ask me for more resources, then the expectations are going to change as well because we have to, you know, we have shareholders and stuff like that. So it's a, I don't know if there's a, I don't know if you have any tips on hiring or like Gary always says, hire fast, fire fast kind of thing. So this yeah. is it. Yeah. I mean, so. Uh, so I think you've got a couple of things. One is the hiring process, and then there's the on sort of onboarding or role yeah. definition process, and mm-hmm. then there's the management process. I mean, hi- hiring is um, yeah, hiring is tough. I mean, there's all sorts of frameworks out there. You know, you can look at who, you can look at top rating, right? There's there's different ideas. I mean, I, I'm I'm always looking at uh, you know, hi- hiring is like selling, right? I I I have to go out and figure out how to differentiate myself in the market to figure out how to get customers. I do the same thing with employees, right? Like, how do I create a differentiated offering for employees to be able to get talent um, that allows me to uh, strategically get better talent for less cost than my mm-hmm. competitors, right? Like, mm-hmm. you, you can always pay 10% more, 20% more, 30% more to get better talent, but now you're paying more money, right? So now you're taking on additional operational costs, company costs to get that talent. A really good company, if they've differentiated themselves from from a talent point of view, means that you you can get that talent. You can either get the same talent for less money, or for that same money, you can get much better talent than your competitors. Right? So mm-hmm. that's that's the whole art of that. Um, in terms of figuring out who to bring in, you know, I, this kind of is, is said in different ways, but you know, hire for fit, train for skill. Right. Yeah. So I'm always looking for well, how well do you know what your culture is and what values, what, what type of person is going to excel yeah. really well and what's not, that's going to be your most crucial hiring decision. Obviously, you know, if you can get skills as well, that's great. Uh, but you know, skills is kind of the thing that I look at secondarily and the thing that I assume that I'm going to have to work on with that person over time, just really hard to train. It's really hard to adjust fit. I, I yeah. can deal with skills in a much more logical kind of successful manner. I mean, I'm I'm so grateful you said that because that's my number one thing. It's about I want to work with people. I want to work like when I did corporate, I had no choice. When it's the company that you know we run, I want to work with people I like. My first thing is I'm you know we have a, a connection of some sorts, whether it's energetically aligned, whatever it is, hokey LA kind of uh, thing you can talk about. We vibrate the same frequency or whatever it is. It's it's that it's that it's that connection and everything else. Obviously, they have to have some skills uh, because they're coming in there, but everything else can be learned, and I hundred percent believe that. And I've been, and I've been, uh, you know, in discussions uh, or disagreements, let's say, with other people within within our company because I come in, I'm like, 
something about that person, man. I'm just not feeling my gut is telling me something. I'm like, oh no, they're fantastic. Look at their resume. They work for this company, that company. Look at the result. I'm like, there's something there and it perpetuates. And every single time that I feel like that, they feel it too after a while. I've had conversations with people and are like, you don't like me, do you? I'm like, it's not that I don't like you. It's, it's, uh, it, I like you personally. Yeah, you're, you're hitting it. I'm always a little careful of that. I, I tend to not use, do I like the person? Right. Um, because the, the, the flip side of this is I, I need to make sure that I'm creating, you know, teams, leadership teams or otherwise, or I need to create a company that is actually reasonably diverse in terms of, you know, thinking and experiences and background. Mm-hmm. All that is good. And that might be, it might not be the people that I want to go, you know, hang out with on vacation or like have right. over for dinner every week. Like the, the, the like is, I think a little, I don't know if it's strong or it's little, I, I want people that share enough core values that yeah. we're willing to have, we're willing to kind of trust each other and engage in critical discussion and critical debate in, in a open, honest way to advance an idea without without questioning or, or uh, undermining our relationship, right? So I want to be able to go into a room with a leadership team and be able to say, you know what? I really don't like the way we're going on this. And this is why. And I want you guys to push back on me on this and, and advance the idea. But I, I, I can only do that if I, if I feel like we share enough core values that mm-hmm. we're all, we all know we're trying, to, we're trying to do the right thing. We're trying to advance the product, even if we disagree on something. We're willing to engage in debate, but we're willing to kind of come together on a decision and uh, respect each other as part of the process. And uh, it, that's where it can go sideways. Is that where using relationship power over role power comes in? Nice. You, you really use some really uh, advanced <laughs> terms. There. Yeah. Um, yeah. We look at uh, relationship power, role power, expert power, um, mm. you know, where you, you have various motivators. Um and the fact is, role power doesn't doesn't get you very far. Like all, mm-hmm. all a CEO, like anyone in a senior position, runs around, uh, you know, with a big sign over their head saying, "I can fire you at any time I want." Yeah. Right? Like people know that. Right? You don't have to threaten people with your role power. And in fact, uh, even the implication, the indirect implication of that, will shut down ideas. Right. Mm-hmm. So the idea of working on relationship power, like I trust you, you trust me. And, and you're going to listen to me because we have that rapport and we have that trust is, is super powerful. The other one is expert power, right? So if I, you know, if I have a PhD in something, like people are probably going to listen to what I say, right? That's an expert, that's expertise power, right? Mm-hmm. So figuring out how to use those in the right way at the right time is a big, is a big part of it. I run, um, I'm going to, I'm going to give away some of my secrets here. Uh, one of the things I do anytime I'm working with a new team, I work on a new leadership team, or we're doing like a strategy retreat. Uh, I often will run this exercise. Uh, I call it the con game. And it's uh, basically 10 questions, random trivia questions, but they have to give me an 80% confidence interval range for the answer. So if I say like, how high is the Empire State Building in feet? You got to give me a high and a low that represents I'm 80% confident the real number is within that range. So I, I make them all do it individually and they all all have their answers for these 10 questions. And then I make them come up with a team answer to each question. Mm-hmm. And so now I get to see how they're interacting and how like when they're like, uh, I don't want to uh, also say, say it's the Empire State Building question. You know, if I see the CEO like saying, well, I think it's, you know, 2000 feet, right? Like yeah. they're, they're just tainting the, the, they're poisoning the well right away, right? They're putting yeah. a number out there. Now everyone has to do it. You know, you can have someone that knows it's uh, 
1,454 feet, I think it is, um, knows it. But now, like, if I, if I say that it's not, if I say it's low, now I'm going to, like, I'm, I'm going to out the CEO as being stupid around this question. I'm not going to say it. I'm going to say, oh, yeah, sounds good. I'm going to go with it, right? Like, all these dynamics of how a team work is going to affect its ability to perform against it. But it's that kind of, you know, how, how do they influence each other? How do they use their power to kind of get the answers is, is a key part of understanding how a team's going to work. But, but doesn't that give you a little bit of insight into the culture of the company? Like if even if the CEO says it's 2000 feet and all that stuff and Bob can be like, dude, come on, man, what are you talking about? It's like 1400. And then you see a different dynamic that's much flatter. Otherwise, other organizations are like 2000 and the CEO said it and everybody's like, oh, yeah, you know, John is correct. Yeah. So everybody agree. Yeah, of course he said it. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not, and that's that. Honestly, that's why I play that game before we start doing the strategy work because I want to see what am I dealing with, right? What yeah. kind of team dynamic am I dealing with, and and I will actually change the way we do the exercises afterwards mm-hmm. to to minimize the potential impact of some of those dynamics. So I'll you know structure the conversation. I'll make people write it down. I'll order how mm-hmm. we how we reply to questions in different ways. I may actually sub put them in subgroups in different ways just mm-hmm. so that I'm kind of disrupting their normal patterns. So how did you learn your organizational skills? Uh, you know, so, I mean, part of it has being a founder and CEO, having gone through the process, <laughs> certainly, you know, the kind of school of hard knocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a member of uh, entrepreneurs organization, uh, mm-hmm. which gave me a lot of kind of exposure and experience, not, not only of just leadership practices and structures and strategies, mm-hmm. but the whole like hanging out with other founder CEOs, uh, you know, both formally, informally, socially, doing forum, doing, you know, the conferences, you just really get to see, you, you get to see the challenges that leaders have. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then I was an agile coach. So I spent a lot of time coaching, kind of learning that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then the training I did in, in, on the business coaching side, uh, certainly it taught me a lot. And I'm a lifelong learner, right? Like I'm always going to a conference. I'm always reading books. I've got, I probably have 15 or 20, you know, online courses that I'm taking, you know, through various organizations around team dynamics, leadership dynamics. Um, you know, I've, I've got two coaches that I work with on a regular basis. So I'm constantly working myself that way. What, what type of, co- what type of coaches? Yeah. Uh, well, so I have business coaches, right? So I've okay. got uh, people that really kind of look at the business side of my coaching practice. Um, so kind of coaching the coach. Uh, and then I've, I've got therapists and I've got uh, personal coaches that, you know, help me dig into, all sorts of dynamics of life and relationships and kids and all those things. I just, I find that process so powerful that Mm -hmm. uh, you just, you have to have it. Like if you're going to be a high performance individual, you have to have that those systems in place that a hundred percent. I I am a huge believer in personalized uh, personal development Uh, in terms of building an organization. And I'll ask you more specific questions about personal development, but do you see that as a quality in a person when you're, either partnering or hiring or anything there. Like, I'm huge on that. And there's other people in my organization that are not. And I feel like I'm pulling them into certain things and are not, may not be their thing. And, and uh, now I can start to see the dynamic is uh, you're getting mad at me because I'm pulling you into Tony Robbins' business mastery course, which I think maybe is a little bit a little bit basic, but it's, it's really good to review some of those uh, things. We're paying for you. Come on board. And uh, I get some pushback and, and resentment for pulling people along into my world. Uh, so it's a, class, it's a classic uh, <laughs> entrepreneurial CEO thing. It's like we always, the joke was uh, particularly with the EO, but 
you know, every time the CEO comes back from a conference, the leadership team's just like, oh shit, like we're going to have like three days of like having to like do all these new exercises and these new plans. It's like, uh, I, I used to say like when I, when I was in conferences and running programs for these CEOs, the first thing I said is like, when you go back, don't do anything for a week, right? Because your team is, has just learned to put up its defenses when you get back from a program like this to just resist everything you say because you're you're going to stir the pot, right? So yeah. wait, wait a week, and then start slowly introducing some of the ideas because otherwise you're just going to run into you know shields are up and you're just never yeah. going to get anywhere. Um, I think some of this is like one of the one of the questions I have when I'm talking to a, a CEO who wants wants to hire me as a coach. I, I will start asking them about what what kind of development do you do? How have you learned? Um, I'll talk to them about the challenges they're having and like, well, what's the source of those challenges? And if I if they're pointing at you know all the well, I don't have the right people. It's all my people are problem, or it's the market, or it's my competitors are doing things. If they're pointing outside a lot, yeah. it's usually not a good indicator for me that they're going to be really coachable. Um, you know, if they're talking about well, you know, I'm 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 struggling with this thing. I'm not sure how to approach it. I've tried these different things. I'm worried like I'm, I just don't have the knowledge or I need a better framework or I need a different mindset. That's great, right? Because if they're thinking, if they're technically we say, if they're putting the locus of control internally, yeah. like that's a good sign, right? Because you control, you, you, there's a lot of things you can control. If you're pointing outside of all the problems, there's nothing we can do about those things, right? So unless, yeah. you, unless you start bringing that focus internal in terms of how are you contributing to the situation, we're not going to get very far. Some some of it may be a culture thing too, right? You know, some cultures are just really big in, in professional development or certain types of development, and you know, you just need to be hiring people that are aligned with that. And if and if, if someone doesn't have that natural wiring, it may not be a great cultural fit. Yeah, unless you're uh, in business partnership with the, those people, and then you start finding out after a while. Like, I, I, I do a lot of business yeah. partnership coaching, and that yeah. you know that is happens a lot. Yeah. Luckily, my and just for the record, uh, Eric, Eric, if you're listening, you're the best partner I ever had. <laughs> I love you and you're great. And uh, he's been so uh, open to my crazy, you know, conferences and and uh, going to, as I mentioned, uh, and I was going to ask you, what, what are some of the ones that you, you attended that you thought were were really good? But I, I've done a lot of that. You mentioned forum. I've done forum. I've done all the Tony Robbins stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm even like right now. I'm, I'm into Joe Dispenza's uh, stuff, what he's doing. But I've, uh, I, I do a lot of that personal development kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of I, you know. It's, it's one of those. They're all pretty good. You just gotta go, right? So it, I'm, it, I'm less concerned about picking the perfect one and just making sure that people are going and trying them. I mean, I have people that go to Grant Cardone and they love, yeah. you know, they love that stuff. You know, other people are they just hate it. I'm like, okay, go to something else, right? So, and some of it is going to be, you know, your kind of learning style and you know, socially what you're like. I mean, some people like you know smaller groups and more kind of experiential. Some people yeah. like you know the Tony Robbins is you know it's big and it's uh, you know vibrant. Um, you know, I've, I've got people that do really intense retreats, small intense retreats, climbing a mountain, right, and learning yeah. about leadership and challenging themselves in different ways. It's much more kind of personal and internal than it is. Know, being part of this huge, massive uh, event. So, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm less worried about. I think the thing that I do encourage people to do is challenge themselves, right? Yeah. So, you know, if, if if you've been going to the same one again and again, and it's kind of if it feels a little easy, it's probably time to do something different, right? Because a lot of it is just exposing yourself to new ideas and putting yeah. yourself in somewhat uncomfortable situations and seeing how you react and seeing what you learn. 
that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah, it's so. I'm so happy you said that because uh, there's a lot of these people. It becomes cult like. Uh, you know, you keep going to the same events all the time. You see the same people. It's time to graduate and kind of expand. You want to be uncomfortable. You don't want to be like in a place where it's unattainable, uh, but you want to be within uh, that attainment, but be uncomfortable. If you're getting too comfortable, uh, it's time to make a switch. That's why, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do many different things and graduate from different things. And uh, and the other thing is the the gospel that people, like when you talk, and I don't want to use Tony Robinson's example, except, but everybody knows who he is, so I, I will. Yeah, it's successful and he it works and, you know, and they have a great funnel and they're always upselling you and all that stuff, which is great. I think uh, it changes a lot of people's lives. And I'm a big fan. I've, I've actually coached with, uh, was a coach for Anthony Robbins uh, uh, Institute and all that stuff. So I, I, I'm a fan, but you have people that are like, uh, they're fanboys and fangirls. They're just following them around every single, I've been to 133 uh, events I'm like, well, great. Did you, how many times did you walk on fire? 15. Well, I only needed to do it once. I got it. <laughs> I, I, I understand. I get it. I don't need to do it again. And it's good to repeat some of the things, but like, you know, push out and, and expand from there. Uh, besides, besides like personal development classes and, and retreats, and I love all that kind of stuff. Uh, did you have a, a mentor? Uh, it's a good question. I, I would say I've had a series of mentors over time in different ways. Um, and and they're not always uh, you know the you know this the CEOs twenty years older whose business is you know ten times my size who kind of guide me on the way. I mean you know sometimes my mentors are uh, you know college students that I'm coaching or I'm you know mm-hmm. uh, mentoring I'm mentoring and like in that process I'm learning stuff about myself. So mm-hmm. I, I guess my I haven't my personal experience has not been like I had this sort of mentor who kind of you know. Uh, uh, was my pathfinder to help me kind of figure out the next steps. I, I have found different people at different periods of my life, either you know professional or personal, that have helped guide me through various personal and professional decisions and kind of journeys and kind of challenges that I've had. So, um, you know, I'm always looking for people. I, I would say one one of the things that I have learned over the last maybe 15 years, maybe 20 years, is mm-hmm. finding a peer group and creating a context around that peer group uh, is probably the best sort of source of mentoring that I have mm-hmm. found sort of conceptually. So it's less about an individual. It's more about if I can create the right group and create the right context where I, I feel safe and I feel accepted and I feel um, uh, I can bring the, the sort of the deepest, most challenging, hardest things that I'm dealing with in a way where I'm going to get real kind of insight and support and feedback on mm-hmm. that's probably the best, best kind of mentoring kind of thing that I've found uh, beyond kind of the, the training, mm-hmm. you know, workshopy kind of information <laughs> stuff that I get. So is that, is that peer group uh, something you put together or do you, uh, are there just friends uh, or is it a business associates uh, like a YPO type of group or like I have a met, I have a men's group that I, I, uh, go to. So we, we, it depends who leads the group. And we sometimes do really crazy things. Like you said, climbing a mountain, we, we do that. And sometimes we do it in the middle of winter. Okay. I'm going to preface LA winter. So uh, it was, it was 53. Yeah, growing degrees. up in Minnesota, I'd be like, <laughs> I'm Philly, same thing. Uh, but I, I hate the cold. And it's, it's funny because I lived in the cold most of my life. And I, we were going and the, the person was leading this, uh, the group. We were, we were going on this three hour hike in the middle of the night. 
So we do this crazy hikes. I've done it before in the middle of the night, and you just can you only get use moonlight, no no lights or anything of like that, and it, it can get pretty intense. Uh, but this time around, we're doing it with no shirts. I'm wearing it's 53 degrees, so it's not freezing, all right. But I'm freezing. I'm wearing a jacket, a hoodie, and a t-shirt, and I'm like, no, 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 I'm not going without a shirt. It's like, no, you have to. And he's trying different tactics. Like, you're not gonna, we're gonna, you're not, you can't be in a group if you don't do it. I'm like, oh, the wrong tactic with me. I'm like, well, fuck you, man. I don't give a, yeah, it's not the way. And then, and then he used the way he's like, dude, you got this, man. You can do it. Don't worry about it. You got this. You've done, you know, it was a different type of approach. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try it. So I take off my jacket, I take off my, uh, my hoodie, and I'm wearing a t shirt. He's like, no. T-shirt off too. Like, all right. I took out my t-shirt and I'm literally 53 degrees. I'm shivering. Okay. I'm walking up and it was about 10, maybe 15 minutes tops where I was already hot because I'm moving, I'm walking. But it's that that idea of it in your mind that I'm going to be cold. Yeah, I'm going to be cold. I but it's a challenge of an attainable challenge. It's not like somebody's saying that. Uh, you know, you need to repel off this mound that I've never done before. I mean, like, shit, I'm not trying, but, but this gives you a little bit of a push. So that's one thing. And then sometimes it's uh, let, let's not do anything like that. We sit down and we do uh, some shadow work or, or uh, you know, uh, goal setting type of things. So it all depends. I, I really enjoy the, the dynamic of changing all the time because when you're doing the same thing, when you're constantly climbing that mountain every single time, it gets mundane. You you got it. All right. So I can challenge myself and maybe I'll, my time will be better, but it's that whole expansion. So I'm always looking for that. The peer groups, as you just mentioned, I'm always looking for that type of thing where I can challenge myself and be with like-minded individuals. Yeah. Yeah. I've had certainly had situations where I've been, you know, part of a peer group for, I remember that I had a case where I was part of a group for about three years uh, and, and it was great. But at, at, at three years, I realized shit, it's just, it's not doing it anymore. Right. Yeah. Like I've, I've gotten too comfortable in it. It's like too, like I've kind of learned what I have to learn. It's getting routine. I'm not challenged by it. And, and I, I guess I've learned at this point in life that the moment I start to feel that way, I got to find something else. Right. Yeah. I got to find it. And, and in that case, I started, I reached out to my network. I got a couple of recommendations. I had a conversation with a group and you know, with the half an hour, I'm like, that's it. I'm in. Right. And I didn't actually know that much about it, but I just knew from, I could feel that I was going to get challenged in good ways. And, and for guys, it's, you know, typically like, you know, we can take our shirts off. We can do push-ups, We can do all these things. Like you start talking about feelings <laughs> or, or you have to start explaining like, you know, challenges you've had with relationships or something like that. And then you get like, I'm comfortable. Like, fuck, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to go do this now because I can see that's where my discomfort is. Right. So like, yes, you, you, you can't get into panic zone, right? Like we talk about comfort zone. We talk about panic zone. There's that learning zone that's right yeah. on the edge there. You got to find that edge. You got to lean on that edge. And that's where you're going to evolve. And that's where you're going to learn. Yeah, that's, I, I love that kind of stuff. But because feelings were something that I've always like suppressed for years and years. Uh, you know, we can go into well, until you <laughs> the know, way. And then you blow up and then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so to me, this this whole sharing and, and, and having love with men and, and, and having these discussions, it, it pushed me to a point where. You know, I'm, I'm feeling much more comfortable to discuss uh, real feelings, but I, I can see where people are just squirming. Oh, like, oh, oh it's, it's so the most funny. uncomfortable. I, thing. I do a lot of men's work, and you just—it's great to be to be in a container with a bunch of men, exactly. And you see someone going through the process, and you're just like, oh, fuck, 
I remember when I was there like two years ago and, just, yeah. and you love them for it. Right. And you support them, but you're just like, you're, you're like, when you get through this, it's going to be super powerful, but I totally understand how difficult this is right now. Yeah. And I, 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 I know you do men's work cause I, I love uh, some of the terminology you use the container and all those things. We, we use those kind of uh, uh, lexicon uh, terminology as well. Uh, you, you wrote a book, right? Or uh, well, did you... I, I write a lot. I actually haven't written a book yet. I, okay. I probably have like six books halfway done. <laughs> well, you should you should finish it. I should. There's a lot <laughs> of things I should do. <laughs> well, yeah. Let me back. I shouldn't. You. I'm not going to use the word should, but it would be it would be a, an accomplishment to write a book. And if this is on your list, I think you can put together a really good book. Yeah. So just yeah, yeah I, I would say no, I've, I, done, I support... I've done probably. 200 articles for Inc. Magazine. Okay. I've done, or for Inc., the online mm-hmm. version. I do, I do the podcast. I create a a, uh, a lot of content, but yeah, I, have, have, I need to, I need to kind of get into it. Yeah, you have a ton of content. Yeah, I'll tell you what, uh, for me, what I did was I found somebody uh, that was a, that was a writer, his PhD in, in English uh, writing and literature. And so I'm like, I don't, I don't write. Uh, I can, but I don't, it's just slow and I can't, so I talk. So I just recorded myself and he transcribed it and I started reading it and it was shitty. And I was like, no, I mean, that's not what I, there's no, it's very hard to convey a voice. And uh, so we started doing this thing where I would record myself a sort of chapter or thoughts, transcribe, and then we would meet twice or as many times a week through Zoom as we need. And we would sculpt the massage. It took me two years to put it together. And he basically did the whole uh, writing. But it was uh, it's coming out September 7th. It's, uh, it's a very cathartic. Yeah, thank you. It's a very cathartic experience to be able to get it out. And, and one of the things that I really am proud of, it, the, I, I like the book. Uh, I think it's, it, it does what I intended to do. But now other people can pick it up. And uh, first of all, it's sort of a legacy. And it stays with me. You know, my daughter can read it, or friends can read it. But also, it it connects the story. Not only my story, but I love when people can connect to. Oh, I'm like this guy, or it's not. I'm not alone. And that's the thing that I was trying to convey to people is like, you're not the only one that had this experience. There's there's a bunch of other archetype type uh, people that had that as well. Um, so speaking of that. How did you get into cannabis or what's, yeah. how was um, so it's interesting. I was a um, pretty hardcore athlete in high school and stuff. So I really didn't get exposed to it. I really, it was not part of my kind of earlier uh, life experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, going to school in McGill, there was definitely, um, uh, you know, some cannabis around uh, and I partook, but um, you know, it really came up. Uh, it was probably about seven years ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, I broke my back. I had a, a, a fractured L L5. And so they had to go in and, and fuse L4, L5, S1, 12 hour surgery, you know, nasty. And in the recovery process, a friend of mine, I was, you know, they gave me this huge bottle of Percocet and a friend of mine said, you should try pot. And so I started yeah. getting into edibles, um, as part of that. Uh, and I was just amazed, right. I was able to, you know, within about a week or two, get off the Percocet, um, managing my pain, um, uh, you know, my, I didn't, I didn't like the fogginess of the Percocet. I, I was much more tolerant of, uh, the effects of THC and cannabis. Uh, it was helping me in a lot of ways. And then I was sleeping really well. Um, mm-hmm. and so it just, I started that kind of opened my eyes to cannabis as, um, kind of medicine, mm-hmm. uh, and got more and more into it. And then I started 
uh, started working with a couple of companies, a couple of founders, entrepreneurs in the cannabis space, you know, coaching them. And then we started coaching the companies and uh, kind of the combination of my personal experience. And as a coach, cannabis, the industry is just perfect for what I do in terms of planning and strategic analysis and doing mm-hmm. multivariate analysis and, um, you know, scenario planning. Like it was just a natural fit for me. And I can kind of balance the you know, having been a founder and CEO and knowing kind of the professional world and the kind of more sophisticated tools and frameworks for running businesses, but also being able to kind of work, operate effectively in the cannabis culture was a kind of a nice blend that allowed me to be super effective. And yeah, it was great. And we started the podcast as really, I just wanted to get super deep into the world of cannabis and just started interviewing folks. And um, we've done like 300 some episodes now with, um, you know, People in Canada, yeah. every, every kind of facet, nook and cranny. So, yeah, it's great. I I, I love your content. So it's really really good, and that's uh, makes total sense. Uh, how do you feel about plant medicine and psychedelics and all that other stuff that we're we're starting to move into? A yeah, bit more well, as a so, society. Uh, uh, so I'm recording now, but we're launching a new podcast called Tripping Outside the Box. Okay. Uh, so we're covering the psychedelic <laughs> industry and I'm working with another group, um, uh, psychedelic invest, and we're going to do an investor podcast in the psychedelic space. So yeah, I'm, I'm all fascinated about it. It's quite different. And the reason we're spinning it off is because, you know, we kind of touched on it on the cannabis podcast, but mm-hmm. the, the business models are different. The industry is different. Its application is different. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's much more kind of drug development models and drug research and clinical trials, um, much more therapeutic focused, um, mm-hmm. long-term, big, big investment kind of models. Um, so we decided to peel it off and, and look at it differently. The other one is you know, depending on how, what kind of circle you use, I mean, you're dealing with both plant medicines and lab medicine, right? So it's a, it's a little bit different of a context in terms of the the actual products you're working with or that, you know, the chemicals, molecules, and where they're coming from. Mm. So, because all of that was so different and in enough ways, we decided to spin it off another space, but yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, a big advocate of, uh, psychedelics and psychedelic therapy. And I've, I've done quite a bit myself and it's, Mm. um, you know, personally has been quite impactful and I just see like the potential of psychedelics to address some, uh, health areas that are so poorly uh, addressed right now, mm-hmm. but it just seems like we have to investigate this stuff. And the other one is interesting too, from a business model, uh, you know, cannabis has always been challenging because you're dealing with so many different cannabinoids and different, you know, terpenes and flavonoids and all these things, trying to get this into kind of a traditional drug model clinical trial process is just about impossible, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're not, that's not really what cannabis is about. Um, Psychedelics, on the other hand, are, are pretty kind of single molecule, single compound um, solutions that you can run through clinical trials, right? So it's actually much more uh, able to kind of run through a, a traditional drug development model. So the, the business models are quite different and, and the business potentials are quite different just because you're, you're talking about developing drugs, which are, you know, billion dollar industries. Right. Yeah. Like, uh, and ketamine is uh, legal already. So that's, that's one that that's being used and, and documented for quite some time. Um, yeah, that, that makes total sense. Uh, and I, and I completely agree with you that it's uh, it's different, even though I do think THC is, is a psychotropic, uh, it does, uh, you know, there's neurochemistry associated with that just like you would with other, uh, but do you think that the cannabis industry, the sort of the plight and uh, of the cannabis industry opened up uh, some doors for the psychedelic industry to sort of piggyback on, on that 
anyway. Yeah, I, the way I think of it is that you know cannabis kind of blazed a couple of trails that psychedelics is now just like zooming through, and but it's I think psychedelics are going to quickly surpass. It, they're going to kind of take an off ramp. I think they're going to use the trail that cannabis uh, kind of you know paved in terms of the regulatory frameworks yeah. and um, you know how kind of the markets get developed to some extent. But it's going to take a quick exit in terms of you know really focusing on the, the drug development um, path. So um, yeah, they, they've definitely they've definitely impacted each other. And um, I think the big thing is I I I think there's going to be less of a focus, or at least uh, the the recreational side of psychedelics is going to be um, uh, it's going to be kind of inverted. Where I think you know cannabis is is primarily driven now by the recreational side, and the medical mm-hmm. side is is still there, but it's a little bit more of a, a minor component of the industry these days, I think it's going to be flip-flopped on the, um, yeah. on the psychedelic side. Unfortunately, I, I really, I really believe in the therapeutic, uh, aspects of, of cannabis, but I, I do agree with you on a business end, especially where I see the money being invested. They're like, oh, you know, we'll, we'll create THC blow pops or whatever it is. So, yeah. Okay. Pizza, great. Right? So, so like pizza, <laughs> like, you know, cannabis pizza. So it's like, I think, okay. I mean, like everything. I mean, I've, I've, tr- I've had uh, so many different products lately that people are making. I'm like, but why? Because because I can, but yeah, exactly. Because we can. My favorite is if, if there's a surface or a hole, we'll figure out how to get cannabis in it. <laughs> exactly, you're absolutely right. Hey, uh, I have a, a few questions I ask all my guests. I already kept you uh, for a while, but before I do, uh, you, I'm I'm an insatiable reader. I'm lying. I'm not really a reader. I'm an audio. I, I'm I, I listen. I'm a listener. Yeah, I do uh, uh, Audible and all that stuff. But I and I have ADD, so I listen to multiple books at the same time. Uh, do you have any uh, good book recommendations? So you know what? I'm just going to pull up my Audible and I'll tell you what I'm cool. listening to now and what. Tell uh, me. Uh, it's only you and me, so don't worry about it. Yeah, you, exactly. You can tell me. Uh, actually, well, this one I just started. Uh, Think like a rocket scientist. Uh, okay. Rosa and Varat. Uh, Varol, B-A-R-O-L, is is fascinating. It's just it, it's really about critical thinking. Uh, mm-hmm. That one I'm almost done with. That's really good. Uh, Multipliers, uh, Liz Weissman is a great one. These are kind of business e ones. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let me give you one more. Mm-hmm. Oh well, anything Michael Singer said. There's a, a lecture series. There's three lectures. It's three different audible. Uh, purchases, but it's a series uh-huh. of lectures by Michael Singer um, on, on the untethered soul. Uh, those are ones. Okay. Uh, oh, I'll give you one more. So th- uh-huh. those are. Uh, those- did you did you read the surrender experiment? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've I think I've I've consumed all of his stuff. <laughs> Some of it he has. I think is it the surrender experiment that's only on Audible? It doesn't. He doesn't actually. It's not written, or it's not. Yeah. You can't get the the thing. You can only listen to it. Um, mm-hmm. One I was interesting. Uh, Roman Dial, uh, the Adventurer's Son. Hmm. Uh, I can't remember. Someone recommended it came up in some conversation. I listened to it, uh, when I was in Minnesota on this last trip, uh, fascinating, uh, and, and being from Minnesota and, and being a bit of an adventure, it's about a, um, a Alaskan gentleman who raised his family in Alaska doing crazy ass shit and, you know, in all sorts of kind of wilderness areas and, yeah. and ra- raised the son who is an adventurer. And, um, his son disappears when he's 28 down in Costa Rica. Wow. Uh, I won't, I won't spoil it, but he has to go, he has to figure out what's going on. Uh, super interesting yeah it's his kind of and it's uh, it's dealing with you know his his son going missing but as also his whole kind of questioning of like did i do the right thing did i did i was it good for me to raise a son who was so adventuresome 
that now is in this situation that I that I caused this kind of thing. But it's as yeah. a father, yeah, uh, it was like an adventurer. It was a it was a great read. Yeah, that's the yeah, it's pretty it's pretty cool. But yeah, um, oh, you know what I forgot? Uh, I was going to ask you something else, but we never got into your triathlon. Uh, uh, maybe you can. Uh, kind of uh, frame that a little bit about your triathlon experience. Well, it's a good adventure story. Um, yeah. So I, I, you know, I've always been kind of a, a, an athlete and like to do things. And I, I picked up triathlon probably about, you know, maybe 20 years ago. And, um, mm-hmm. I, at some point I decided, you know what, I'm going to put Ironman on the list. And, uh, uh, I did a half Ironman and then, um, uh, said, yeah, I can do an Ironman about a year. I planned it for the next year. <laughs> and then, uh, six weeks, seven, seven weeks before the Ironman, uh, I was getting married and I had uh, a nasty cough. I went to the doctor and they said, I said, look, you got to take care of this cough. I'm going to get married. It's going to be horrible if I'm coughing all the time. So yeah, I can take care of the cough. I'm worried about the lump in your neck. Like what? I'm like, oh yeah, sure enough. And I had this, this lump down in my lower neck, which turned out to be my thyroid. Hmm. He's like, yeah, I don't like this. Um, when are you getting married? And I was like, well, I'm getting married in six days. And you guys say, all right, uh, in eight days, you're going into surgery. <laughs> so I went in surgery two days after I got married. Um, they removed uh, the left nodule and the isthmus of my thyroid. Um, they, they diagnosed it. It was a herthocelladenoma, non-cancerous uh, tumor. Um, but, but six weeks after that, I had an Ironman. So the, the day after surgery, I'm shuffling, shuffling down the halls. Like three days later, I'm on the bike. Like Four days later, I'm, I'm, um, you know, I'm running, I'm in the pool. So I did it, I completed it, but it went from being this kind of thing I had trained for and had targets for to being, I just want to finish now. Right. And I ended up walking half the marathon and, but you know, I got over the finish line and it was a great, just kind of challenge of how do you reframe something like that when you have that kind of setback and, and, and still make it a challenge, but you just, you have to reset your context around it. And I've, mm-hmm. I've I talk a lot about it with my clients and stuff about sometimes that happens. I mean, it happens in business. Like sometimes you got to reset, right. And doesn't mean you need to stop, but you just need to re re reset your goals and figure out given what has happened, what do I want to do now? Have you read Goggins uh, book, David Goggins? Yeah. Yeah. I highly recommend that. Uh, speaking of, you know, how to reframe, overcome, Obstacles and physical obstacles. Yeah, he's he's incredible. And then uh, I also uh, one book I'll recommend is uh, Lifespan, David Sinclair. So uh, it's a it's an amazing book about how we can uh, live longer and how to prevent aging and all this other stuff. So I find that fascinating. Um, all right, so here these are the, the mo- these are the most difficult ones. So uh, get ready for those. Okay, please describe your first experience with cannabis. Uh, various first experience, but I was probably 13 hanging out with my friends who all had older brothers mm-hmm. and, uh, and I took a rip from a bong and I remember just sitting in a chair for like four hours. <laughs> <laughs> like I just kind of like melted into this chair and just watched the world go by. And it wasn't, it wasn't an uncomfortable experience. I, I would say it was the first time I, my, I kind of felt really kind of separated somehow mm-hmm. from between my physical being and my mental being, like, the, like this whole kind of seeing myself differently. Um, it was fascinating. It was fascinating, mm-hmm. but that was the first time I, I really kind of partook or really kind of experienced cannabis. Got it. Uh, obviously, wasn't an 
horrible experience because you continued with uh, cannabis throughout. Got it. Uh, so I'm I'm a big music guy. Uh, as obviously you can probably tell behind me with all the, but music has been a, a big part of my life. Do you remember what uh, what your first concert that you attended was? Ooh, first concert. I was going to say first album. First album was Fan Island. I'll ask you. That, that was the next uh, question. First, so I oh. remember I, I saved up my birthday money and I bought a boom box. And the first cassette tape I bought was Van Hill in 1984. Uh, yeah. First concert I went to, I think it was Hall & Oates. Okay. Uh, at the... Uh, in Philly? No, this would have been Minnesota. All in Minnesota. A friend of mine's father was an EMT, and he'd work the uh, the venue. He worked the, um, I think it was the Metrodome. I can't remember. Yeah. Where we, no, it may have been the Civic Center in, in St. Paul. But he worked, you know, he worked the thing, and they got us into tickets. We kind of had, we kind of saw it from the back, like we it was kind of open, big big Civic Center thing. Mm-hmm. But we had sort of seats in the back because it was that section was closed. So we could sit back there and we watched Hall and Oates. Uh, probably the big one. I, the one that I, the first real kind of rock, rock concert that I remember was um, uh, Guns N' Roses in Appleton, Wisconsin, open air, uh, and they were three hours <laughs> late. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, I went to the first, I don't know if you remember, Axl Rose, when they were coming back at this new, not this uh, new uh, tour, but the very first when they when they came back. Uh, a couple of years, th- three years ago, I, I guess he was at the Troubadour in in LA, and he fell off the stage and broke his leg. That was his warm up show, and the first concert they had of the uh, this is the the huge huge tour with Slat everybody. They're all together. The first one was in Vegas at the brand new I think T Mobile. I don't remember what the new arena is called. And Allison Chains opened up for them, so uh, we. Yeah, we had two we had two uh, shows back to back to see both of the shows, and Allison Chains played, and uh, then uh, Guns N' Roses were supposed to come on, and it's two hours go by, and we're just standing there, where the hell? And it was we waited for over two hours, it wasn't three, but it was over two hours late, and then uh, they start the music, and Axl Rose comes out, crutches with two like nurses, they're wearing like. The, you know, sexy nurse outfits, <laughs> and he and he uh, and he uh, they get him over to a throne that says uh, he's sitting on this throne of Guns N' Roses, and he's got his leg up, and he's doing the entire concert from sitting on this uh, on his throne. And after halfway through the concert, the the thing that's covering the throne starts uh, that says Guns N' Roses starts moving down, and it says Foo Fighters. It was Dave Grohl's throne that he was using when he broke his leg. And he then he's got on a mic and said, I want to thank Dave Grohl for uh, lending me his uh, his uh, throne. So it was a it was a pretty. Yeah, but they, they've been late consistently. Yeah, they were classic. I, that was yeah, the thing. there's only one person I think is later than they are in concert is Lauren Hill. I've never seen a Lauren Hill concert where she was on time and usually like hours and hours late. So, yeah. Uh, do you remember the last concert you went to? Yeah, prior to I was, uh, well, actually, well, I don't know if you went to any. Yeah. So the most recent, I saw uh, Wilco at uh, Red Rocks in. Uh, oh, cool! Red Rock. Yeah, yeah, that was Red great. Rocks. I took and I took my. Uh, that, that was a fun one too because it was a family thing. I took my fourteen-year-old son, and so ah, uh, we that's so cool. We were hung out in Denver, and we went to. I, it was kind of last minute. I was like, oh yeah, Red Rocks, let's go. What's playing? It was like Wilco, and we got tickets. And, yeah, that was that was that was fun. It was fun to go with him. I really it was a special time. Very cool. Uh, so, what has cannabis meant in your life? Mm. Um, 
You know, it's been a couple of things. I mean, you know, it, the most recent kind of reintroduction of cannabis in my life, uh, you know, five, six years ago was, was really as medicine. And I think that was a really kind of important kind of transitional part mm-hmm. for me um, it is seeing how uh, it could be used as a tool to help me manage my health and my body. And it became, it, it's become a very important part of my sleep hygiene and, uh, you know, how I kind of take care of myself. Um, I think the other thing it's, it's really become a community, right? Like I just, I realized that, um, I like cannabis people, right? It's one of the reasons I love coaching cannabis companies. It's just, you know, they're, they're different, they're fun, they're expressive, they're, they're willing to do things like even if, I mean, a lot of people complain that there's a lot, not of business acumen and like experience in cannabis. I get that. But damn, that like the passion and the interest. Like, if I could take one percent of the passion that cannabis people have and give it to my tech guys, like they would crush it, right? And yeah. so, I just love, I love the cannabis community and interacting with folks. So it's been fun. Um, yeah, hundred percent. I completely agree. Okay, last bonus question. Uh, please describe what your room looked like growing up. Ooh, uh, so I, uh, I'm going to give you the, my first room by myself. So I shared a, a room with my brother until I was about. 12 we had bunk beds uh and then my father converted a basement room we built we dug out uh the window well so we could have a full window in a basement room um mm-hmm. <laughs> i had a water bed so i was thir- like 13 12 13 <laughs> i had a water bed a soft-sided water bed uh i had black lights uh, uh i had uh, a lot of uh not inappropriate how do i say Posters that were very uh, appropriate for a 13, 14 year old boy, uh, Morgan Fairchild, Christy, like all the all the women and a lot of like the, the velvety kind of the, the neon velvety posters of yeah. those things. I think I, I probably had like a Pink Floyd and things on the walls. Um, I remember those things. I also was in that room. That's that's the way, first thing. Oh, and I had like a lava lamp. I remember having yeah. a lava lamp in there. Very, very kind cool. of like. Man, KV kind of thing. yeah, and I remember the the door the window was big enough so I could sneak out at night. That was the really strategic aspect of my my room. Of course, at thirteen. Oh yeah, <laughs> lots of money. I I I understand. I was uh, there myself. Yeah, I I think I had some of those velvet posters in my room, and I had when you mentioned nineteen eighty four. I had a a nineteen eighty four poster uh, in my room, and then uh, I had Heather Thomas in a limb. Standing outside a Lamborghini in a in a bikini as well. I think I had to have a locklear as well. Oh, I did have the Heather Locklear. I did have that one. Oh, yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, Bruce, uh, I just wanted to say thank you so much. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, hire you. Uh, you obviously are a fantastic asset to a team. Uh, and not only that, your podcast, everything else. So just promote yourself. Yeah. So um, uh, website is just Eckfeldt.com, E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T.com. That has all my kind of professional coaching stuff. Uh, Bruce at Eckfeldt.com is my email address if you want to reach out. So that's all my kind of business stuff. Podcast, uh, Thinking Outside the Bud is the cannabis podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. You can find all the episodes there. You can find it on you know all the platforms as well. Uh, the new one, uh, which the website is up, you can go to is Tripping Outside the Box. Uh, so that's, um, uh, going to be everything about psychedelics. Uh, we're going to be releasing episodes probably beginning of October. Uh, that's, uh, best way to get that. Uh, you know, my website has links to all my, uh, articles on ink and things like that. So you can always check out those things, but yeah, email me. I'd love to talk. Great. 
Thank you again for your time. Appreciate it. And uh, I'll see you soon. Thanks. Take care. All right. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.